Continuing our sermon series from the Luke and Gospel, turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus and it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling a parable. As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has, he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Easter is the grace of God. In the grace of Easter, we learn both how to deal with death and also how to live life. A professor tells a story that a colleague of his, he tells it in the first person. A colleague of mine down at Phillips University, a young woman taught physical education. She was a marvelous person, young and vigorous, married. One night she was sitting in her apartment grading paper. She heard a knock at the door. She went to the door and locked it and opened it, and there he stood with his yellow face staring right at her. She slammed the door and locked it and called the doctor, and he said, malignant. She had surgery. A few months later, she was back at the university, and I said, hey, you're looking good. And she said, I never felt better. Now, she had lost some weight, but she was back teaching physical education and jumping on trampolines and all, doing great. Everything seemed to be wonderful. But later, she was at home one night watching television. She heard a knock at the door. She went and opened the door, and there he stood with his yellow face. She slammed it and locked it and called the doctor, and he said, chemotherapy. Oh, she was sick. Her hair came out. She got a wig, came back to school, and I said, now that's becoming. Maybe you should have been wearing that all along. And she said, I feel pretty good, and, and she was teaching again. Later one night, she was sitting there grading papers in a room. She heard a knock, and she went to the door and unlocked it. And there he stood, old death with his yellow face. And she slammed the door, and she tried to lock it, but the lock was broken. She called for her friends and relatives, and everybody gathered. And we leaned against that door, and we leaned against that door, and we leaned against that door. We were even joking and laughing. We're not going to let him in. We're going to keep him out. We looked out the window, and he was just sitting under the tree with his yellow face right there under the tree. One, one night, she said, get away from the door. What? Get away from the door. So we got away from the door, and he came in. And I felt sorry for him, for he likes to come in with fiery darts of pain. In fear. Death likes to rob us of those who are most dear to our hearts. 
There is perhaps no more wrenching word that can be said than dead. In fact, it's amazing all the euphemisms we've developed to try to not say that word. We have concocted a a whole order of them, haven't we? Someone has fallen asleep or they've expired or we lost them or they left or they passed away or they didn't make it or they even kicked the bucket. We'll say almost anything to avoid uttering that word dead. D-E-A-D. We hate the word because death is a thief, a hard thief that robs us of the tender touch of son we love dearly. It robs us from sharing a smile with our daughter, from feeling the warmth of our husband or our wife, from enjoying the security of the presence of our parents. There are lost embraces, embraces conversations that never get to be exchanged. Dead. It's an awful word. And it robbed a group of disciples of their Savior, of their Lord. They were stunned. How could this have ever happened? They knew that following Jesus was a risk and political upheaval was put down by the Roman authorities. But this this one, they had seen the lame leap and they had seen the blind be able to see and he had walked on water. They had They had seen it themselves, and the city was all abuzz just a week earlier. They were proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Stop the blasphemy, the Pharisee just said. You can't let your disciples call you the Messiah. Why, if they're silent, the rabbi had spoken, even these very stones will cry out. The week had started so wonderfully. How could they have ever anticipated or predicted such a dreadful ending, such a horrible death? Now look at him. The one who had entered as a king was hanging on that awful cross. His back was shredded from the flogging. His face was beaten from the fist. His brow was lacerated from the thorns. The nerves and the ligaments and his feet and wrists were torn by the rough spikes. And as if to write the end, at the conclusion of the story, they had a a soldier step up with a spear and rupture Jesus' internal organs with a butcherous stab. He was dead. They were empty. Death leaves us so empty, so angry, so shocked. It never really makes sense and sometimes no sense at all. The disciples were stunned to silence by the death. We too are left in the deep despair that death delivers So many of you have been robbed in recent years by someone you love so much. And so this morning, you don't have to imagine what the disciples felt like when the one they loved the most and the one who loved them the most was dead. You know that feeling. You know the emptiness and what do I do next? And 
how do I get up and start today when today is like any other day when she was present or he was present? As they hurt, you hurt. You know the feeling. But I'm happy to say the story of Jesus does not end at the cross. The conclusion of his story is not at the tomb. The storm that occurred during the crucifixion had ended and the blackness had turned to the light of day and the earth had ceased its seizures and all was still. After the three bodies had hung motionless for some time, two men and their servants approached the cross upon which Jesus was hanging. They spoke to the centurion and they handed over their official papers and they took the iron pinchers and they braced themselves against the lower beam there and they pulled out the spike at his feet. Then they lowered the cross beam down and Jesus' slowly stiffening body still attached and it was a gruesome, awful work. But they took the pinchers and they removed the final spikes in his wrists They wrapped his body in a cloth. The awful work was eventually done. These two members of the Jewish ruling council who had shown some sympathy to Jesus during his ministry, they wrapped his body in the clean linen cloth and Joseph of Arimathea had Jesus' body brought to his own tomb, a tomb that had never been used before, one that had been hewn out of a rock there in the garden. The women, Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James, they had washed as the men had hurried in and out of the tomb, ripping the linen cloth and wrapping it around as was the custom, but the Sabbath was approaching and so they had to hurry and, well, the women weren't sure that it was done just right and so they planned that after the Sabbath might pass that they would return to the tomb and make sure the body of the rabbi was anointed with all the customary spices. The body was now mummy-like on a shelf inside the tomb. The Sabbath was approaching. There wasn't a moment to spare. The men take the lever and they wedge the stone over the entrance of the tomb and head back to the city, followed by the women at a distance. Now, this Sabbath was supposed to be a holiday a festival, a time for the Passover with friends and family, some holiday. Nobody was in the mood for celebrating shock and disbelief and stunned and trying to figure out how it all went wrong and when it all went wrong and what they could have done differently if they had to do it again. For the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord had changed into the concophony of crucify him, crucify him. What happened so fast and how might they have changed it? Pilate placed a contingent of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb to make sure that no one could tamper with the tomb of this uprising. The Sabbath passed without any incident. 
And just before sunrise on that first day of the week, the women gathered up their spices and they were slipping out of the house where they were staying. At dawn, the city gates would be opened and perhaps they could get to the tomb and do their task. And well, before anyone would even notice, anyone would ask any questions. Jesus' mother Mary had been physically and emotionally exhausted by the devastating event of watching her son being crucified. And finally, finally Mary slept. John washed the silhouettes of the women, made it away from the city street. He reflected for a moment about the therapeutic value of being asked to do something, having a job or a task. And, and now he was more grateful than ever before that the Lord had looked to him and asked him to take care of Mary, the Lord's mother. And as they approached the little garden outside the wall of Jerusalem, to their great surprise and their startling dismay, they noticed that the tomb stood open, but it was empty. And even as they were pondering their perplexity, two men stood near them in dazzling apparel, just as the angels had proclaimed the glad tidings of the nativity of Jesus. So now again, God sent some celestial beings to bring the women the tidings that he had risen from the dead. And as is the case every time in Scripture, when mere human flesh finds itself in the presence of the celestial, they lower their heads in fear, respect, and reverence. And the angels spoke directly to the women. They said something like this. You should have known better. Don't you remember what he said? They would be handed over to the authorities and they would be crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. What are you doing here? Why are you looking for the living one? in the graveyard. Ha. You should have, you really should have known better. And the women remember all that Jesus had said. It's a gentle rebuke. You should have known better. Or why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? You're in a silly place for a silly purpose. You have a living Lord. Couldn't you conclude that the one who is life himself can never be held captive by the bonds of death? How many times had Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and rise again? How many times had he warned them, had he given them the narrative and the plot, and yet they missed it? 
fact, he had told them so clearly that he was going to live again. Yes, those ladies surely should have known better. They should never have sought the living Lord in the cemetery. But we should know better, too. We should know that death cannot defeat those who follow the Jesus who is resurrection and life. For as Paul has said, even as Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, that those who believe in him shall follow Put another way, because Jesus Christ has been victorious over death, those who believe in him will likewise be equally victorious. Death has been defeated. Death comes to your home and death visits your family and robs you of that living love relationship that you have. It is ultimately and absolutely for eternity powerless. Paul writes it this way, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toll is not in vain in the Lord. Death is at last defeated the resurrection of the Christ. The divine creatures give us in this passage, this narrative, the greatest proclamation of the ages. He is not here. He has risen just like he said to you. Don't you remember? When they declare that Jesus has risen from the dead, they declare that we can be a people of hope and not a people of despair. When they declare that Jesus has risen from the dead, they declare that those who love him don't have to be afraid even of death anymore. When they declare that he's risen from the dead, he is not here. They are saying, grieve if you must, but do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul writes it this way for Jesus Christ himself the one who is resurrected, the Son of God, will come down from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the blast of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What they were saying is this. You'll be forever in the kingdom of God side by side with your loved ones who also profess the lordship of Christ. When they say he is not here, he is risen, they might as well have said, sleep well tonight, ladies. Your Lord is alive. God is on his throne. There is no death to bring you despair. It is in the cross of Christ Jesus that we find grace. It is in his resurrection that grace is made available. 
Because of the death and the resurrection of the Christ, grace is made available to you. Grace is made available to me. And grace, living in grace changes who we are. It changes how we live. And we see this morning, it changes how we die. For now we die with hope. But, but likewise, grace changes how we live and forgive those around us. Fred Craddock, once preaching professor at the Chandler School of Theology, tells of visiting another city. He had a weekday appointment to speak at a church, but to save the flight, the money for the church, he went and stayed the weekend at the hotel. And he said it was a little hotel, and it really wasn't in the church district, so to speak. And so he asked at the counter on the Sunday morning, is there a church near this hotel to which I could walk? They kind of huddled together behind the counter, and they conferred with each other, and they finally said, yes, there's one about three or four blocks down on the left. Well, what kind of church is it, he asked. Do you know? They didn't know what kind of church. It doesn't matter. I'll go. He said, that's okay. He walked down to the church, and it was a, a small building. He said the kind that probably the men in the church had helped build because they certainly loved it, so you could tell. It was warm and friendly, but it certainly wasn't elaborate at all for worship. I took my seat a bit early, he remembered. It began to fill up slowly, and then I looked around, and it was totally full. And at the appointed hour, the choir came in. Following the choir came the minister. I was absolutely shocked writes Craddock. He was very tall. I, I suppose he was about 6'5". He weighed 280 to 300 pounds. But what's most noticeable feature was his stumbling, his lumbering gait. He was awkward, almost falling up the stairs with his long, useless arms, looked as if they were waiting further instruction. His head was misshapen. His hair was all askew. He stumbled up the three or four steps to get to the pulpit. He turned to face us. He had these really thick glasses, milky look around them. One eye was looking one way, and the other eye, nothing seemed to be coming in. And when he read the scripture, he held the book right up to his face as if he couldn't see otherwise. And he spoke as he read 1 Corinthians 13, his sermon that day, the greatest of these is love. He spoke as if he had learned to read as an adult. It was an unusual sermon. It wasn't particularly poetic. It wasn't particularly prophetic. If I was grading it in class, I would have given it a C. But it was warm and full of love and affection. It was firm and it had some exhortation in it. But the relationship between these people and the love that he extended to them as he preached and the love that came back from those people who sat quietly leaning forward was captivating. And I was captured, he writes. What is this? How is this grotesque creature so full of love? I didn't understand. And I started remembering things that I shouldn't be remembering and thinking about things like Beauty and the Beast or Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, so ugly on the outside and yet so beautiful 
and capacity for affection on the inside. Is that what I'm seeing here? He asked himself. I want to get acquainted with this extraordinary preacher. So I lingered at the door, hoping to invite him to lunch. He couldn't go, but as I stood by the door, me now the student and him the professor, I observed the greetings and the hellos and little words of pastoral care and comfort and respect between him and the members. And one woman, she looked to be probably in her mid-70s, she shook his hand at the door and she spoke with him and she said this, I wish I could have known your mother. I saw her having the same trouble I was. She didn't understand the source of all this love coming from this preacher. And he, I, I wish I knew your mother. Maybe that's the answer. Perhaps that's what she was thinking. And he said, my mother's name is Grace. When everybody left, I sat on the back pew with him. We visited for a few moments, and I said, that was an unusual response you gave that woman. My mother's name is Grace. Is it? He asked. When I was born, I was put up for adoption at the Department of Family Services. And you can see no one wanted to adopt me. So I went from foster home the foster home. And when I was age 16 or 17, I saw some young people going upstairs into church. And I wanted, I wanted to be with young people. And, and so I went in. And there, and there I met Grace, my mother's name. is grace, the grace of Easter. It teaches us how to live, and it teaches us how to die. You really should have known better. The one who is life himself the co-creator with the Father, the one who had raised Lazarus from the tomb, you really didn't have any business coming to the graveyard looking for a living Lord. Now, did you? Death keep its grip on the Son of God? No, never. Don't you remember what he said? I will die, but I will rise. And they remembered his words. Let us pray. Oh, God, I know there's some in this room who have faced death recently. 
And I know they need to be reminded this morning. Thief that he is, in the end, he loses. That we are the people who follow not only a crucified but a living Lord, and we live in his grace, and we die in his grace, and we rise eternal. Oh, God, maybe there's someone here watching by way of television or someone on the live stream this morning or someone in this great sanctuary for her, for him. Today is a day they say, I want to be sure. There's only one living Lord. All the other gods of all the ages and other religions are dead and buried or objects made with hands. But we and we alone worship the one crucified and resurrected. And we need to participate in his death that we can also participate in his resurrection. Maybe there's someone like that listening this morning who needs to say, oh God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Oh, God, I'm lost. I need need a Lord. God, I'm bewildered, and, and I need a purpose. God, I'm a follower, and I need a leader. Maybe there's someone who needs to call Jesus Lord this morning. Oh, God, for all of us, remind us of the comfort of the Easter story. The name of Jesus we pray. Amen.